Deliberateness is exactly what Paul encouraged Timothy to be or to have and possess. As Timothy's task here was to nurse the church back to health. False teachers had somehow arisen in the Ephesian church and they were teaching things that led people away from the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul, who administered and established this church in Ephesus, tells Timothy, his young disciple, a young pastor, he tells him, write the ship. Be centered on the gospel. Be dedicated to uh, the scriptures, to the teaching of them, the reading of them, the proclaiming of them. But he also addresses how the church ought to behave. So not only does he teach about sound doctrine, he tells the church how they ought to behave that, in a way that accords with sound doctrine. And this is really why he wrote this letter of First Timothy. So go ahead and turn to uh, chapter 3. And you see there, in verse 14, we have a clear reason Paul gives for why he wrote this letter. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you, so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So here, not only is he getting at doctrine, he's also getting at behavior that accords with doctrine. So today, as we look at this at our particular passage in chapter two, verses eight to 15, we look at how we ought to order ourselves in public worship, at least in a couple of aspects. Our passage today, which deals with prayer and then gender roles and leadership in the church is a very famous one and in fact has spawned a lot of discussion particularly since the rise of the feminist movement over the last uh, handful of decades but with any talk about how we are to order ourselves or structure ourselves or how it is that we are to pray who ought to feel fill leadership positions we have to be reminded of what the mission of the church is so Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You see this. This is great. He encourages Timothy to be centered on the gospel. And really, the main reason is, is so that Christ will be exalted. It says, To the King of ages, immortal and visible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Paul also says in the Corinthians that everything that the church does, when we exercise our gifts and serve in the appropriate ways, everything we do ought to go to the upbuilding of the community. The strengthening of local churches so that ultimately Christ would be known. The Savior would be known and his character is displayed. Whether it's preaching the gospel or even how we are to pray, how we are to structure ourselves. So given that this word still speaks, we know that it is applicable for us today. So the things we learn today, things we look at, we ought to be applying to our lives here presently. The word still speaks, even though this was originally written to Christians most immediately uh, in the first century, the middle of the 60th uh, decade, this is also applicable to us. So while we read, we should be asking questions like, what does it look like for our beliefs to be worked out in practice? To aim, what does it look like for us to aim at propriety or right order in public worship and in church life? And this brings us to point number one. We need purity in prayer, Paul says. We need purity in prayer. Look there in verse 8. Here he first addresses the men. And he says that they ought to be men of peace. He says, I desire then that in every place men men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. 
So we know in the previous verses, from verses 1 to 7 in the chapter, Paul encourages the church to be praying for all men. And then he lists a subcategory of that. He says, pray for the rulers who are in authority over you, the kings. Pray that they would administer justice well. Pray that they would, there would be peace and pray that there would be salvation amongst them. And he says, why? It's because God has a big heart. So Paul's calling our prayers to match God's heart. He says, as you guys pray, may your heart be matching God's heart who wants all people, all men to be saved. And then here in verse 8, he gets to how we ought to pray. So look there again, verse 8. Now, Paul's point here is not pure posture, but a pure heart. So you see that lifting holy hands? He says, I want you to pray lifting holy hands. That's just a typical way that people would pray, uh, whether it be in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament. It's one of many different postures. You can be prostrate on the ground. You can be lifting holy hands, kind of showing your dependence upon Jesus as you receive from him and you ask from him. But the emphasis here is that we pray without anger or quarreling. That's the emphasis here. Not pure posture, but a pure heart. Without anger towards God's people. Without quarreling with others. So if you were to read through the rest of First Timothy, you know that these false teachers taught things that led to, not the upbuilding of the church, but to quarreling. Vain discussions, speculations. But these Christians are to go about their piety and their pursuit of God without any of that kind of stuff. He wants their prayers really to be effective and genuine. He wants them to have a robust prayer ministry. And he says, anger and quarreling prevents you from that. So you can imagine how ineffective our prayers would be if we are angry and given to quarreling with the very people we're supposed to pray for, right? And pray with. So you guys know what this is like. Have you guys ever gotten in an argument with somebody? Let's say right before dinner time, and you, and then you go to eat dinner, and you know nobody wants to pray and go before the Lord to intercede on His behalf to use this food to nourish both of our bodies, and then especially if you're convicted and you know that you've been mean to this person, or maybe you know that that person has been mean to you. The last thing you want to do, even though you might know it is right to say, "Okay, let's hold on a second, let's intercede before God." And pray that the Lord would give us humility, forgiveness, self-giving. It's difficult to pray like that, right? If you're having anger for the very people you're supposed to pray for or with. Now imagine being the Ephesian church. Called to pray for Nero, their king, who's been feeding Christians to dogs and using their bodies to light up the night sky as he burns them. How does one genuinely pray for their captors and killers when they're sinfully angry towards them? Right? I mean, typically in an unrighteous anger, let me underscore an unrighteous and sinful anger gives way to resentment and bitterness, right? So you guys know what this is like. How do you approach Jesus, the one mediator for all men, when you don't really want Jesus to mediate for them? So here he just says their prayers are supposed to flow from hearts that match God's and God's heart is a heart of peace. So he's just saying pray, lifting holy hands, the underscore here, the emphasis is without anger, but instead with peace. Peace has always been a high priority of God's. It is after all why God sent Jesus, his son, into the world to take on flesh and die for sins. It's so that sinners 
when they had sinned, they earned for themselves just punishment. God purposefully says, I want to reconcile those people, even though they're deserving of judgment, I want to reconcile them to me. And so what he's doing is he's softening hearts that are hostile towards them and instead establishing peace. So what Jesus does is he bears the sins that that, uh, we committed and the punishment, the wrath due us. And instead he takes that on himself. You know, the uh, the illustration of the bridge, you know, that evangelistic illustration. Sin is this large chasm between us and God. You know, it's not perfect, but nevertheless, it does communicate the fact that Jesus Christ brings peace, a clear way between sinners and God the Father. Where once there was hostility towards our hearts and him, Christ then brings us and draws us together here. By bearing on the cross our sins and the wrath that we deserved. So it's always been a high priority here. This is what the atonement is. The at one mint. He's bringing two things to one. Peace has always been a high priority of God's. And so it's natural for his people to seek out peace in the world at large and uh, in the congregation. So you remember Jesus, he, he says at one point in time, he says, look, if you guys have an issue... He's speaking to Jews at this point in time. He says, if one of you guys has an issue with one of you and you're at the temple offering a sacrifice or offering a gift, he says, you leave it there. Just don't worry about that. You, what you should worry about is your hearts as they interact with one another. Because you guys ought to be a people of peace who have a ministry of reconciliation. You minister Jesus Christ to people. So he says, you leave it there. You leave your gift before the altar and you go. And he says, first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So you see how the effectiveness there of the worship of God's people is affected by the way that we interact with one another. If our hearts are pure towards one another and others outside of the church, our worship of God even is effective. So God says, look, I want you to have hearts that hold not onto anger, but hearts that hold onto peace. Right? I mean, how do we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts if we aren't forgiving other people? Paul wants our hearts in prayer to match God's heart of salvation, and God's heart is a heart of peace. He's desirous that all people be saved, and he desires peace. You know, wonderful opportunity that we have to be reminded of peace between one, one another here in this church is the Lord's Supper. It's, you know, so the Lord's Supper comes with a warning, as we're going to be reminded of a little bit later. And the warning is that if we aren't minding the body, which is what Paul says in Corinthians, then we are guilty of profaning the Lord's blood and body. So what that means for us here is that if we have something against our members, if let's say we're holding on to resentment and bitterness, what we ought to do is go and settle that before we take the Lord's Supper. Because how do we proclaim Christ died for my sins and he's forgiven me and he calls me to forgive others, but I ain't going to follow the last part of that. I embrace the benefits of salvation without really accepting the responsibilities of that same salvation, the grace and the peace that he calls us to flow from us after we've already received it from Jesus. So if you are holding on to something against your brother or sister, don't take the Lord's Supper, just let it pass. You go and settle that issue. May may there be reconciliation that ultimately pictures a reconciliation that we see symbolized here in the Lord's Supper. Just because you refrain from taking it doesn't mean you're not a believer. 
But if you were to take it with an impure heart, a heart that isn't repenting of sins, that should be underscored, repenting of sins, not perfection here, a heart that's not repenting of sins, then we would be guilty of uh, taking this in vain. So for the men, Paul says, strive for purity in prayer. He then, as he's encouraging purity in prayer, he moves on and, and encourages the women. And here he's addressing purity in prayer, specifically in the, uh, the issue of modesty. So look there in verses 9 and 10. He says, likewise, also, or basically in the same vein, he says, me as an apostle, I say likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So here he's addressing pure dress that really flows from a pure heart in the worship service and then certainly all in the rest of life. To boil it down, he says, look, women in the church service are to dress according to their profession. It's supposed to be parallel or more like their profession is supposed to birth pure dress. It's interesting here. I mean, believing in Jesus is supposed to affect one's clothing choices. Right, there's nothing too minuscule or outside of the reign of God or the Lordship of God as his salvation works through, really his grace works through. The goals that we would glorify Jesus work through even to the things of what types of clothes do we wear. To say it positively, women are supposed to wear respectable apparel marked by modesty and self-control. He says it negatively, not with braided hair, with gold or pearls or costly attire. So, what's the deal with this? I think my wife was wearing earrings. I don't know if they were gold, but is she guilty of sin here? Or if you have braided hair, does anybody have braided hair? Oh, look at that. Okay. Um, you know, are, are, are people in sin because of braided hair or gold or costly clothes? Is this an absolute for Paul? The answer is no, it is not an absolute. It's helpful to know the context. See, these things were very much associated with uh, the apparel of a prostitute. So one Jewish historian of the time, he, he, des- he describes prostitutes like this. Her hair is dressed in curious and elaborate plates or braidings. She wears costly raiment or clothing and bracelets and necklaces and every other feminine ornament, wrought of gold and jewels hang around her. So you see what he's getting at here. The stuff that he's describing, it refers specifically to the prostitute's apparel. John Calvin captures Paul's intent well. He simply says, a godly and honorable woman will undoubtedly dress differently from a prostitute. <laughs> when I first read that, I thought, well, thank you. Thank you very much. You know, he's a bit like Captain Obvious there. Uh, defender of the things already known. <laughs> but it's really true, isn't it? But don't be satisfied with the fact that godly people dress differently than a prostitute. Press deeper to the why. Don't simply stop at that the fact uh, exists, but press deeper to the why. Prostitutes, as one said, dress themselves in effort to draw attention to themselves. The Christian woman, on the other hand, dresses to draw attention to God and his character. 
So imagine if I was a male prostitute and I'm up here praying, I'm going to be drawing your attention to me, not to God and his great, wonderful character. So he encourages the woman, the women there, dress with modesty and self-control and with good works. It's those things that correspond with godliness, with believing in Jesus Christ, with professing to be Christians, to be saved and to have my identity in that Jesus, not in my hope may be dressed in uh, or my hope placed in my own body. And, and don't interpret this wrongly and think that God is a prude. He is not a prude. He just is so determined that people know that in him there is greatest pleasure. And when you go about your lives as Christians, talking about Jesus, living a holy life, your modest dress will not detract from that witness, but confirms that witness. It confirms the belief that in Christ there is ultimate pleasure, not in here, but in him who saves us. So Christian gals, you know, you certainly do not have to have a background of being a streetwalker to know what it's like to uh, dress in a way to draw attention to yourself. You know, this can look in a lot more uh, um, subtle ways. So if you're wanting to know more about what it looks like to dress modestly and with self-control, and more importantly, what it means to find out your identity in Christ as a blood-bought child of God, and then what that means for how you dress, let me encourage you to borrow a book uh, from a number of these gals here who have it called True Beauty. The girls have been reading it. They read it uh, last month. And I know that Mel found it very helpful. And from when I've skimmed through it, I think it's also very helpful too as I think about how to encourage my daughters in their dress and how they ought to think of themselves as beautiful and what defines beauty according to the words of God. Another thing you, you can do, if you have specifics on what exactly is modest or immodest or what might uh, draw attention to some of us men who have very weak wills in some respects... You know, feel free to ask a mature Christian woman that you respect and just say, look, do you think that, that men would be distracted by this, let's say, in church? Pray, too, that in all of this discussion, you know, it's so tempting to take this discussion, especially when we're losing sight of the gospel for any number of reasons, and to think, oh, my goodness, here, we're just, this church is all about dealing with uh, the specifics in a legalistic way, or it's nitpicky. But try and cast your mind and remember, think of your heart, pray that God would give you a heart like God's, as God cares for his people. So you gals and you guys should be also having a heart for God's people. So what this means is pr you could pray that you would uh, that you would love your brothers in this regard, in this con uh, congregation. And your love for your brothers would inform the way you dress yourself. Pray that you would pray that they would be concerned, right? Pray that they would be concerned more about God and less about the things of this world. Pray that you would be concerned that they not stumble in sin. But instead, they would be fixed on, consumed with, and even slobbering over God and his character. And not merely your, or not your body. Remember, in all, of these, in all of these encouragements here, that the goal of propriety in worship or right order, how we structure ourselves here, how we pray, is supposed to be the glory of God. 
the building up of the saints. That's why we do everything for the exaltation of Christ. So when you put on your shirt or when you put on pants, the exaltation of Christ should inform how you do that. When you're going to the store and you're putting on clothing, the exaltation of Christ, not wanting people to be fixed on your body, highlights certain areas of your body, but to highlight the gospel of Jesus Christ as you go about living your lives and interacting with people. So that's point number one, purity in prayer. The second point, after addressing purity in prayer, he addresses roles in public teaching. This is verses 11 to 15. So Paul here, he shifts the conversation from public prayer to then discussing roles in the, pub, in the church's public teaching. So he says God's glory is to be displayed not only in how we pray, but also in the ways that we order ourselves when it comes to leadership. Verses 11 and 12. Go ahead and look there. He says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, let's be frank here. Many people find a straightforward reading of this passage to be repulsive. Submission, you know, these very words, submission or quietness, they may repulse you. You might think that, you know, all of a sudden... Christianity is all is sexist, chauvinistic. This might lead you to think about women's suffrage, and automatically it means that Christians believe in the inequality of men and women, that women somehow are of lesser value than men. Do they have less dignity than men? If that's you, I'm glad you're here, and I pray that the rest of the sermon, as we unpack these verses, that the rest of the sermon will be helpful for you in terms of how we are to understand this passage. And really, what is the, if you look at historical Christianity, what is the historical, the traditional view of this passage? But in trying to understand this, you know, the goods of this passage, we got to be careful to not read too much into it. You know, we live in a very egalitarian society where if you think about, you know, you think about the founding of America, you think the Boston Tea Party. You think, don't tread on me. You think 1776. And, you know, we are a country that's founded on egalitarianism. So oftentimes we're just so tempted to read so many things into this passage when really Paul isn't saying everything you think he is saying. First, we have a reminder before we get into some of these subjects here. Keep in mind that Paul is addressing the gathered church. He has in mind here when the church gathers. So he's not talking about your leadership, let's say, in your homeowners association. He's not talking about women's leadership, let's say, in the PTA or even in the classroom or in politics. Here he addresses the church and so the church's leadership in specific. So when you read those words of submissiveness or quietness, all those words are used in relation to. To the teaching office of the church. That's what he refers to when he says teach. There he's thinking teaching the scriptures. When, he, when he's thinking about exercising authority, he's thinking of the official office of the pastor or the elder. So those words there, submission, quietness, they should always be read in relation to the official office of the church. And then also, as we know in scripture, to marriage as well. So let's dive into some of these subjects here. Let's look first at quietness in public worship. 
So just as we already saw that Paul is not on a crusade against plated hair or braided hair or gold or pearls, so this call for quietness is not intended to be absolute. It is not absolute. Paul is not saying that women in church should be muzzled. He is not saying that women are never supposed to say anything or that women are never supposed to pray or that women can never read the word of God or that women can never sing on the worship team. That is simply not the case. So you, we know, okay, we know if you're tempted to think, if you're tempted to think, oh, all you Christians think that women should never say anything in church or if you're saying, yeah, you know, the women shouldn't say anything in the church. We know from 1 Corinthians, Paul writes there, and it's very evident that women were praying in public and prophesying in public. Whatever you take prophecy to mean, women were doing it in public. And he's not saying don't do it. He's actually encouraging it. He says, I want you all, men and women included, to be exercising the gift of prophecy because it builds up the church. So we cannot say, there should be no defense that says women ought not say anything in the church. He is not calling for absolute silence. Remember, it is silence in relation to the official teaching office of the church or anywhere where one is unfolding authoritatively on behalf of the church, the words of God. Um, so she is to remain quiet in relation to teaching the word of God in the church officially. Instead, she is to learn. So that's quietness. Let's move, look next at submission here. What's the submission in public worship? Um, you know, again, with this word submission here, we want to balk at this word along with quietness. And even some of us men want to balk at this word too. But did you know that submission, rightly understood and rightly exercised, rightly practiced, is to be a mark of every Christian? So you cannot think submission categorically is a bad thing. You just cannot think that. Uh, so, for example, Hebrews, there the congregation uh, is supposed to obey its leaders. Now, I don't even like talking about stuff like that because it almost seems self-serving as if I'm calling you guys all to obey and that's just what I like to do. But nevertheless, that is what God's word says. Christians are supposed to submit to their government. Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Children are supposed to submit to their parents. And then in Ephesians 6, he even says that slaves are supposed to submit to their masters. And we know there in 1 Peter, Peter encourages them, the, the slaves, these bond servants, to be submitting to their masters even if they're unjust. Hopefully, in effort to win some of them over, to be a fantastic testimony of Christ's love for sinners. Just as Christ suffered and did not open his own mouth, so he encourages those people to go ahead and do the same. But get this, thinking about submission, when we submit, when you gals submit, you gals follow the steps of Jesus Christ as submission was a mark of the Savior. Not only was it a mark of every Christian, it was a mark of the Savior. That's what marked him. He is who said, the one who said, not my will be done, but yours be done. And remember, this has nothing to do with inferiority. So nowhere in Scripture are we supposed to conclude that Jesus, therefore, because he submits to the Father, is less of less worth or less dignity than the Father. Submission here, rightly practiced and rightly understood, is a beautiful thing. And so is authority as well. 
So in relation to this inferiority, that's what a lot of people think of when they think of submission, that automatically the one submitting is inferior to the one that they're supposed to submit to. That is just simply not the case. Uh, scripture says that men and women are equal in value. Just like Christ and the Father and the Spirit, equal in value, but yet there still is submission. So you look at Adam and Eve, right? Both were created in the image of God, which means they have inherent value and inherent dignity because they are created in the image of God. Men and women both have equal status in Christ. And so if you read Scripture, you see that, that, uh, that Scripture is saying that women too are sons of God. That's not meant to be like a, some sexist comment. Because back in that, those days, the son, the eldest son, was the one who inherited everything. And so when you say that, that women now are sons of God, it means that they take part, they have a share in the inheritance. There's equal value between men and women in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says in Galatians, there is now no male nor female, all are one in Christ. Jew, Gentile, male, female. Jesus saves all who repent and believe, and both men and women are made heirs with God. So conclusion, any thinking that says women and men are unequal in value, the Bible says that is absolutely wrong. Okay, let's move on to teaching in public. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Now here, this is not simply an opinion. This is the Apostle Paul who has received this ministry from God saying, this is what I, this is what I command here. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Again, we, the temptation is to read so, much, so many things into here. Are, you, are they saying women can't teach at all? That women can't lead anything? That's not what he's saying. Remember, he has in mind roles in the church. But regarding the church, the office of elder or pastor is limited to men who meet certain qualifications. But that doesn't mean that women can never teach. So you see in Titus chapter 2, Paul calls older women to teach the younger women. But they are called to teach. They're responsible here. You think about teaching of children as well. And then in the book of Acts, you see a man, Aquila, and his wife, Priscilla, were teaching, they were unfolding the scriptures to a certain man named Cornelius. And it's interesting in Acts chapter 18, Priscilla, his wife, is named first. And a lot of people think that she is named first because she's taking, actually, she's bearing the larger weight of unfolding the scriptures to this man, Cornelius. Cornelius is going out and preaching the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila take this man and unfold the scriptures so that he might know it better, so that he might go on and preach more. The implication is that Priscilla played a larger role here in this instruction. But there, it's not talking about the official church gathered. But nevertheless, you see women, we see women here helping to lead. Helping to teach even, and Aquila here is present. Again, in 1 Corinthians, even though, the, the, even though prophecy isn't the official teaching role, uh, women nevertheless are bringing encouragements to the church at large. So Paul is not saying that women cannot teach entirely, or that women cannot say anything encouraging in public. But again, according to this passage and other passages, it's clear that Paul desires, Paul commands that the teaching roles of the church, where one is authoritatively unfolding the words of God, where one is exercising authority and shepherding the congregation, that those would be reserved for men who uh, meet certain qualifications. 
This has nothing to say about women being less able and competent to teach. So this is not based on ability. Um, In many churches, and even in this church, there are women who are more competent to teach. They have greater ability to teach than some men who might feel called to the ministry. There could be women in this church who would be able to more ably teach and unfold the scriptures better than the church's senior pastor. So it has nothing to do with ability and competency. So as many of us guys know, and many of you gals know, you are capable and you are able. You have wisdom to add. I mean, some of you guys come from cultures where a wisdom of a woman is not appreciated. The voice of women are oftentimes not appreciated. Or maybe in that cultural, cultural sin is that the men look down upon women and that they see like some sort of divine right to use them as sort of doormats in the house. That's not what Paul is calling for here. Jesus has a fantastic ministry to women. So much so that he has the first witnesses of his resurrection be women and women could not legally testify in court to something in that day. And yet God calls women to be the first witnesses there. And then he says, look, I want you to go and tell the disciples that I am alive. I mean, they have the the great opportunity to go and bring this good news to the men. So gals, you are able, you're capable, and you have wisdom to add. So for example, if we're in small group and someone's taking questions, you know, the leader's taking questions, and they're having dialogue, please speak. And I get, the, I, get, I get that you want to defer because maybe you want to encourage the men and their leadership. Remember that by you speaking, actually, you are encouraging the men to speak. But we want to hear from you. So speak your mind here. And remember, we want you to do this because the Spirit works not only in men, but also in women. So if you come from a culture where you just sort, your gut reaction is sort of to think of yourselves as the doormat, God doesn't call you that. And he doesn't want you to be that. Instead, he wants you to give the insight and the wisdom that he has given you to the church. If you have pastoral concerns, come and talk to me. Come come and talk to the leaders of the church. We want to hear those concerns and we want to hear them from your perspective. As oftentimes, women are thinking in different ways than men are. I find to be oftentimes in much more gentle ways, in much more caring ways. So come and talk to us. We need your input there. If you're sitting around, let's say you're spending time with friends, talk about how you're spiritually encouraged. I know, again, you know, the gut reaction might be to defer or to not talk about these things because you want your brothers to sort of take charge. Um, But again, let the guys learn from you and maybe even be rebuked by your example. So talk about what you've been reading in the Bible what you've been praying through, how you've been spurred on, how you've been convicted, and just speak what's on your mind. I think, I I call that regular Christianity that we practice here in America. Another wonderful opportunity you have is prayer. So uh, let's say Sunday evening, we're going to gather together to pray for the needs of our body. How awesome would it be if the women's hands were bolting up when I say, you know, pray for such and such an issue. That will be an area where... Uh, we as elders have determined that the women could pray on behalf of the church. And you would be helping us go before the Lord 
to bring that particular concern to God our Father. So to get back to some of the objections, you've now heard that the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in value. But also you hear that certain roles in the church are reserved for men who meet certain qualifications. Is this a contradiction? That might be an an objection there. Is this some sort of contradiction? But the Bible teaches that this is not a contradiction. In fact, the Bible holds this out as God's design in the church and in marriage. Equal in value, different in role. You can just write that down. Equal in value, different in role. You can memorize that. And we see this concept in God himself. Equal Equal in value, different in role. Just as we see submission in the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father, the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father as the Son and the Father send Him out at Pentecost. Just as we see submission in the Trinity, so we see differences in role. Each person of the Trinity is equal in value, but when it comes to the plan of redemption, they have actually specific roles. So what you see here is unity. You have the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You see unity in the Godhead, but unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. But get this, the diversity never leads to division. Now that's hard for us to embrace, right? Perfect unity in the Trinity, but never division. But diversity is unity in diversity. So the father, for example, he has a leadership role in the Trinity of planning redemption, of sending out the son and directing and commanding the son nor the spirit ever sends the father into the world. But instead, we see the father leading and directing. And then the son, he plays a unique role in redemption, too. He's the one who comes. He's the one who arrives. He's the one who is manifested by the Father, and he dies on the cross. The Spirit, too, he he plays a unique role in the history of salvation, different than the Father and different than the Son. So are these roles within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, are they based in ability? Is the Father more gifted in planning, which is why he is said to predestine? No. Wayne Grudem simply says, Authority belongs to the Father, not because he is wiser or because he is a more skillful leader, but just because he is the Father. Just because he is the Father. So looking at all these things we see in God, or what we see in God is what we are to see in his people, the church. Submission between the persons of the Trinity, role distinctions between the persons of the Trinity, and as we are God's people... It's natural that we're going to see some of these things amongst us. Equal in value, different in role. This is God's order. So we see here that the women are called to learn in relation to the official offices of the church, to learn in quietness and in submission. But what are the reasons why? What are the reasons why Paul says we are to do these things? Look there in verse 13. It says there the word for. It says for. That that provides us the reason. Or because. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. So here it's just. just, the, The reason why is because this is God's divine order. Now some people have objections to this. And they say okay. Well the reason why Paul is commanding the church to do this. Is because it's there. It's culturally specific. That's for the first culture back then. But now today in the 21st century, you know, we are of a different culture. So therefore, this doesn't apply. 
Okay, there are some people who say that. This no longer applies because we are in a different culture. Another objection, they say, well, gender roles in society, let's say in the church or in marriage, they came about because of sin. You know, way back in the garden, there was no gender roles. That's what some people say. And then now that we've been saved in Christ and then we've progressed over time, the trajectory is the farther and farther we get into salvation in Jesus Christ, well, these roles are going to be overturned. That's some of the objections, culturally specific, or that gender roles themselves will be overturned in a perfect state. Well, I understand how seemingly tempting um, these lines of reasoning are, but verse 13 prevents us from that. We cannot hold to those objections because of what he says in verse 13. For Adam was formed first. So does he say... Uh, this is culturally specific. The reason why I want women to be to not fill these elder positions and teach the word or preach the gospel is because it's culturally specific. No, he doesn't say that. He actually goes back to a different culture. You can't say that that uh, it's culturally specific because Paul himself is transcending culture. And then we can look, you know, for folks who say, well, gender roles are being overturned back in the garden. There were no gender roles. But actually, he roots it in creation order. He says you can't say that. Because back when there was no sin, when Adam was formed first and then Eve, that was God's creation order. So, as an evangelical who thinks that, who believes all of these words are true and they ought to be applied to our lives here, we know that in God's perfect mind, he determined to make people and make them in his own image. And he designed them to display his glory in fulfilling the roles that he had given them. So he gave Adam, before there was sin, he gave Adam the task of ruling over creation, of caring and working the creation. And then he created Eve to be his helpmate, Scripture says, to help him, to support him in the work, and together they would image forth God. There's no sin there, yet there already are roles there. So isn't it fascinating, as we apply this to our church, isn't this fascinating that in our little church in Hacienda Ice in 2014, God has charged us to reflect a little bit of that character of God? The same, the th same things we see in the Trinity, so we are to see a little bit of it, even, if, even though it is flawed by our sin. He says we're supposed to see a little bit of it in this creation order that echoes the eternal order of the Trinity. This is unity and diversity when these things are playing out well. Unity and diversity, diversity, but not division. Um, verses 13, 14, 15, oftentimes these can be kind of confusing verses. I'll give you a, a summary of what's going on here. In verse 13, creation order is explained. Verse 14, creation order is overturned by Eve. And then verse 15, creation order is upheld creation order is upheld so we just talked about how the creation order is explained there in verse 13 adam was formed first and then eve that's god's divine order but then he moves to verse 14 and he says and adam was not deceived but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor so here he's talking about creation order overturned by eve now some people think that that this means that women are somehow more gullible or that they fall into sin more easily or something like that don't don't think that that's not helpful um and they might think that because it says the woman was deceived first 
So in other words, 13 says man was formed first. That's why they should fill the pastoral role. And then verse, and then number two, women fell first. They're more gullible, which is why they shouldn't. Don't think of it like that. Verse 14 is more like an explanation of verse 13. So it would read something like this. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man because God's creation order needs to be upheld. That's verse 13. God's creation order. He says man was created first and then woman. And this authority and leadership is exactly what Eve tried to overthrow. This is what he's referring to when he says Eve was deceived first. So verse 14 is like a commentary on 13. So in the garden, um, Adam, Eve's husband, had told her that it was necessary to obey God and not to eat of the forbidden fruit. But instead of listening to her husband and, and protecting her, or instead of listening to her husband, her shepherd, the one who was supposed to protect her, she chooses to listen to the serpent and thus was deceived and became a transgressor. Eventually, Adam sins as well, and then that leads all of humanity to be born in sin. And there's great consequences. So the point is not that Eve is more gullible or sinful. I mean, throughout Scripture, you see that the weight of sin, the weight of the fall, is placed not on Eve's shoulders, but on Adam's. So in Genesis chapter 3 that Oscar read earlier, who does God call to account for first? It is not woman, even though she sinned first. It is the man, because he's supposed to play that uh, bear the weight and responsibility of leadership there in marriage. And it's also reflective of God's community, that is the church. Romans 5, for example, says that death and sin entered into the world through Adam. So the point is not that women are more gullible than men. The point is that God's creation order ought to be upheld. And this is what Adam and Eve did not do. And then to explain further, verse 15, he upholds the creation order. So even though Eve overthrew the creation order, there is good news. Now, this is a can, can be a confusing verse too. look at verse 15. He says they're trying to give hope, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. Now, he's not saying that women are saved through childbearing. That would overturn salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And plus, as one pastor said, that would put us men in a difficult position. <laughs> What he's doing is he upholding creation order and he's saying women, if they are to go and do what God has created them to do, that's symbolized by childbearing, doing what only woman can do, they will be saved. Now, what that means is that in that order, when woman does what only she can do, it eventually leads to Mary who gives birth to the Savior. Only That only can happen by women doing what they have been created one of the things that they have been created to do and what only woman can do one commentator said in fulfilling her role as represented by childbearing the woman gives birth to the savior and thereby she brings salvation into the world she will be saved through childbearing if they continue now here are other marks of the creation order if they continue in faith love and holiness with self-control so there you have creation order explained overthrown and then upheld You know, to apply it to us again, it is enough of a reason for us to order ourselves in this way simply because God calls us to. But remember, he tells us why we are to. Everything we do in this church is to go to the glory of God. 
So Paul here instructs churches to order themselves like this in these instructions and in these commands. He calls us, we have invitations to enter into and see God's being and worship. This is not insignificant stuff. We have invitations for us to see God's being and worship. So we see submission between the persons of the Trinity. We see leadership and authority in the persons of the Trinity. And we are supposed to worship here. So living out godly submission and carrying out godly leadership here in this church is a small reflection of God's being. You guys get that? Remember that God calls all people, men and women, to submit to their leaders. But speaking specifically to Christian women, God calls you to show forth the trust and the faith that Christ himself had in the Father. That's the opportunity that you gals have in learning and submission and quietness to the elders of the church, wherever church you might be one day. And even in this church, he calls you to show forth the trust and the faith, the ability to relax in the arms of one who exercises perfect authority. That is God, the father authority, rightly possessed and rightly used. So in your submission, you say to everyone that God's leadership and authority can be trusted That God's leadership and authority is worth trusting. That God's leadership and authority ought to be trusted. And you say that his word is good, that it is faithful, and that it is sufficient. Now, are you supposed to submit to any pastor? The answer is no. Who are you supposed to submit to? You're supposed to submit to a man in the church, we're talking about the church here, the elders of the church, who have, as their authority, the same authority that you have. That's the elder that the church is supposed to submit to. Not just anyone. So he's not saying, look, you're supposed to submit to all men in general. He's not saying that. You're not supposed to submit to any elder in general. He's not saying that. He's supposed. He's saying that you all, the church in general, should submit to a leader, an elder, who clings to and builds his life around and preaches that same authority that you have, namely the Word of God. That's why you testify that God's authority can be trusted because those who lead in the church that you submit to, because they lead with the Word. That's where the elder's authority derives from. God calls for congregants to trust and submit to appropriate church leaders insofar as the word is preached. It's instructive, isn't it? That submission ought not be given where the word is not taught. Where the gospel is not present. Do not submit to that leadership. Do not submit to the elder, an elder, unless... The elder is submitting himself to the word of God. So in the end, we see that ultimately we share the same authority. That is God. And in submitting, you say to him, you say to God and you say to the world that God's authority can be trusted. Look at me as I relax back into the authority of God underneath the word of God. And so we're also called here to be people like the Berean church who took everything that was said from the pulpit and compare it to the authority that is God's. And where the elder is off, you do not believe him. Where the word is preached rightly, 
then you can believe him and relax in leadership, ideally. Now, we are not perfect. So the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, we do not perfectly show forth the authority, God's perfect authority in the Trinity. But yet we are to aim for that, just as you are to aim for the same submission that Christ had. So I hope that you do not find submission and role distinction in the home and in the church repulsive. Because we see these very things in the character of God. And if they are not repulsive in the character of God, then how can they be amongst God's people where the word is rightly preached and where authority is rightly used and carried out and where submission is rightly carried out? As the Son submits to the Father and as the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father, so we are to submit to one another as well. And so there ought to be leadership positions in the church. So strive to live out this remembering that the goal in addressing propriety in public worship or in church life is ultimately the glory of Christ who submitted perfectly to the Father. Now, if you are a non-Christian and you're listening to this submission stuff, the reason why one ought to submit in general to God the Father and to Jesus as Lord and to the Spirit is because He is God. He is the one who is over all things. And this is a call for you, even though you might be from difficult experiences and have a difficult background where authority is clearly abused and you have clearly been treaded upon this here. God calls you to enter into a relationship with him where authority is perfectly expressed and where we get it right. Sometimes we don't, but where we get it right, that's a small reflection of the perfect authority used in the Godhead. And he calls you to carry forth, just like Jesus did, who perfectly trusted in a father who always uses his authority well. So he calls you to submit to Christ, who is Lord. So if you have not, the Bible calls you to repent of your sin, to turn from them and be saved. And when one is saved, one is forgiven by God, who uses his authority to declare someone righteous. He says, I give that to you. You desire forgiveness, I give you forgiveness. You desire right standing, I give it to you. You want to be adopted into my family where I will never leave you nor forsake you? He gives that to you. He is a God who judges and who carries out justice. But he does that perfectly, using authority in perfection all the time. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you are a perfect father. And that you do use authority perfectly all the time. And that you possess all authority. Teach us all, whether we are leaders of the church or not. Teach us what it looks like to submit ourselves to the word of God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your example. As you submitted yourself to the Father. As you trusted in the Father's plans. As you trusted in the Father's uh, power to raise you from the dead. And as you trusted in the Father's Father's presence, that you would, in fact, deliver and be who you say you are. Father, we pray for the gals and for the guys of this church as we all struggle at various times to submit to you. But Lord, we pray that the Spirit of Christ would dwell in us and give us the fullness of Christ so that we might know what this is like. Father, for the leaders of the church, what a weighty responsibility is to show forth to some degree, whatever degree you call us to and give us the power to, or what a weighty responsibility it is to show forth the authority of the Father. Lord, we pray that the leaders of the church, as it says in Acts 20, that we would care for ourselves and be watchful over ourselves as we submit to one another. 
Lord, we pray that we would be a humble people and that the leaders of the church would lead first and foremost that we would be humble, basing our lives in the true authority that is God. In your name we pray. Amen.